The very first church was formed at Pentecost. The first Christian church was formed at Pentecost. And on that day, uh, what had happened is that the 120 or so followers that had remained of Jesus were gathered together in one place and they were praying, anticipating when the Holy Spirit would come. Because Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be given power and you'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so they were anticipating and waiting for that and they were all gathered together and praying and that's when the Holy Spirit came upon them and the church really began. But gathered in Jerusalem that day were um, around 600,000 people in the city at that time. So of that 600,000, 120 had remained as followers of Jesus. And when, when the Spirit came upon them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and these apostles, the, the, the 12 of those who were those apostles, began to speak in the languages of the people who were gathered there in, that, in the city at that time. People from Cyrene and from Southern Africa and, and, and Northern Africa and the Mesopotamian area and all over uh, the Mediterranean realm, all the way up into Rome and Gaul, all these different languages. But they were Jews who were gathered together in the city, following their Jewish religion and gathering for their Jewish festivals, when Peter stood up among them, and we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, this is what happened. Um, With many words, Peter testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So the very first church in Jerusalem is the, the result of the Pentecostal act of the Holy Spirit coming and the gospel being preached. So the very first church is the church of Jerusalem. And how many people were in the Jerusalem church on day two? 3,120 at least was the size of the very first church, which kind of shoots down the attitude that some people have that, oh, the only good churches are small churches. The big church is corrupt and bad, and the good church is the one where everybody knows one another, and we're all in one of each other's lives. Those are the only good churches, and the big ones are just a business. Um, Hogwash, because the very first church was 3,120. The size of the church isn't what matters. It's the authenticity of the relationship of the church and their relationship to one another in Jesus. That's what makes good churches. They're really good 50 people churches, and there's really good 8,000 member churches, and all in between. Size does not dictate the goodness of a church, but a church that is holy and godly and doing well tends to become larger as she grows. And so what we see is on day two, there's 3,120 people in the Jerusalem church, and people are looking to pastor James to step up and help this work. And so what's happening in this early church is they're going to demonstrate how the church should look and how it should conduct herself. So we're going to start taking a look at that today. But what I want to do first is draw your attention back in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. If you have your Bibles, look at that. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Something is going to be said here that is extraordinarily important on our quest to understand the role of the church and our role being the body and blood of Jesus, the, 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 the hands and feet of Jesus, the church. Verse 40, these are Peter's words. He says, be saved from this corrupt generation. Now, if I ask you, what's a generation mean? What are some responses? Let's interact here a little bit. What's a generation mean? What do you think? A family. A family. Family, and keep going, Marietta. In a family, what's a generation you're talking about? 
So this may be mom and then grandmom and then great-grandma and junior. And so we're thinking in terms of generations that way. Yes. Fair? Okay. All right. Somebody else. Generation. What's that mean? A time frame? What might that, what do you think a time frame might be? 50 to 80 years? Okay. Somebody else? Generation? Culture, okay, so within a time frame, an era maybe, an ethos, a culture dynamic, okay. All of those are absolutely right. Um, so sociologists, and let me bring it home, you'll, you'll associate with some sociologists in the United States kind of look back and they use some terms to denote or characterize or paint with a broad brush different generations. And you've heard these terms. You've heard of things like uh, the silent generation or the builder generation. Uh, let's, let's, let's try this. How many of you are members of the boomer generation? There they go. Don't, don't, be, don't be ashamed just because you're old and decrepit. Don't worry about it. What's the... Uh, the bu- the, the boomer generation, then you have Gen X, who's with me, Gen Xers, woohoo, it's all about me, right? right? And then we move into, from, the, from Gen X, we have our millennial generation, where are you? You're awesome and you know it, right? Okay, let everybody else know. And then we have uh, the Gen Z, which is the last generation, so the Gen Z, how many of you are 20 or under right now? Where are you at? Yeah, you're the hope of the world. <laughs> I was going to say, thank you so much for your generation. So if, if we think back, there's these things that we say that are kind of typical of each of the generations, and, and it always starts off in the pejorative, in the negative, right, doesn't it? It always starts off, oh, they're just a hippie generation, generation's good for nothing, destroying everything we build. Oh, my goodness. And the generation X, oh, it's the me generation. All you ever do is, is listen to your MTV and you watch your video games, you know, and they're playing in arcades and feeding quarters to that monster that just steals them from you. You're good for nothing with your rock and roll. Oh, and then the millennials, there's nothing. Nothing said negative about millennials, I understand, but disease, I'm sure they'll have some things to say about. In Paul's generation, in Peter's generation, in the generation when Luke was writing Acts and Peter stood up to preach, he said, be saved from this corrupt generation. As it turns out, let's think about what was going on in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the generation that Luke is writing about and that Paul and Peter would be speaking to. It looks like this. It's a generation where amongst the Jews, you have the Pharisee party and the Sadducee party. You had the Zealots party. You had parties that were following certain different Messiahs. You had those who were um, who were kind of Hellenized or Romanized and liked to do things the Roman way. You had some that were traditionalists and liked to do it just the ancient way. And so, as it turns out, in Jewish society, amongst those six hundred thousand or so people in Jerusalem, they're all pulling and striving against each other, and they're doing things that we would refer to as caricatures. They're saying, "Well, all Pharisees are, all Sadducees are this way. All you people are this way. All you people are that way." And it led to this division amongst them. And so speakers would stand up and make their point for their point of view. And the people would either love it or hate it. And then others would go to this rally over here and they would kind of do their things. And, and, you know, they would have the, I got the Pharisee hat. Oh, I got the Sadducee hat. Oh, I got the Zealot hat. And I'm sure they were blue or red or green, right? And so what happens, this is how their society is divided. It's hard for us to understand in America today, but just imagine that that sort of a thing would relate to us. Other things that were typical of this generation, many of them were Hellenized. They had become much like the Romans or the Greek Hellenistic culture, and so they were hyper-sexualized. They were hyper-focused on wealth 
and status in their culture. They would, this is crazy, they would identify with certain culture leaders and say, oh, I'm kind of with this one. I'm kind of with this one. I identify with this one. And they would wear clothes that were kind of typical of this this group that they would identify. Isn't this weird? And then over here, you would have these. They would kind of dress away or wear their hair away or or use words or, or maybe even little slang terms that identified them with this group. And so this is what was happening. They were incredibly identity focused in their society 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Isn't that totally foreign to our way of thinking? Isn't the Bible so outdated and irrelevant? I mean, why even bother, right? Why open up this, this book that was written in another culture that has nothing to do with ours today, right? We are so savvy. We have Apple computers and Chevrolets. Huh. As it turns out, there's nothing new under the sun. Does anybody else hear Solomon writing to Lemuel? Vanity, vanity. All of it is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all the same. It rehashes. And here, here's the thing I find funny. They're calling Generation Z. How many of you are born out, under 20 years old? Where are you at right now? Gen Z. Here's what they're saying. Ready? They're calling you Boomer 2.0s. Isn't that funny? You're rebooming. You'll be the biggest generation the world has ever seen as you mature. You are idealistic. You are inherently moral. You reject concepts of race and nationality as your norm. And you have an objectively positive view of the world and what it's capable of being. You couldn't be any more different than your millennial predecessors. God bless them. But what's happening is you're seeing a shift and a shift and a shift. But all of them really... They look a lot like the shift that happened back here and the shift that happened back here. So as much as we like to be silly and and, and pay sociologists to give us all these terms, the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. And the generation that Peter was speaking to is almost identical to the generation we're in right now. Folks, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be separate from the culture and what the scriptures refer to as the world. So when you hear the term the world, what scripture means is the majority culture with all of its corruptions and godlessness that stands outside of and opposed to or apart from the church of Jesus Christ. So you have a dichotomy. You have the world and the church, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this age. That's the terminology the nomenclature that plays in. Now, are you all with me so far? I need to see some nods. If you've got your eyes like this, like, I have no idea what he's talking about. I heard that boom thing, and then I realized I was a hippie. Does that make me a boomer? Or I'm like an early, what is it? So this is where we find the, 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 the cultural landscape laid. And our world is just like theirs. It's just a little different in its shape. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove that which is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of your Father in heaven or God, depending on your translation. Now, when we, when we hear that, the world. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. What does it mean to transform and renew something? Have you ever pondered these words? If you renew something, you make it new again. 
Anybody else like to watch the, uh, the house restoration, car restoration shows on TV? Anybody else do that? Don't you dare leave me hanging. How many of you like that? Okay, whew, thank you. Thanks, Brad. Okay, so yeah, Phil's over here wearing, wearing what kind of shirt? What is this? It's a Magnolia shirt. Awesome, awesome, from Waco, Texas. Yes, where God lives. And so if you, if you go back and think across our culture right now, just over the last generation, what we, I don't mean 40-year generation, but I mean over the last uh, TV generation, I'm just going to stop. I have no idea where I was going with that. What's happening is we see a love for restoring old things and making them new. This renewing is very popular in our culture, and it's perfect for Christians because that's exactly what we're all about, renewing, taking things back to the way they were supposed to be, making them new again, restoring them to the way God would have them good and perfect and the acceptable will of God. So let's talk a little bit now about the world and what it is as opposed to uh, the church. So there's some scriptures I want you to hear. We're going to roll through um, about five of them. I just want you to listen. Read if you can see it, but just listen as, as we go to these things as scripture talks about the world and the church. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one oneself unstained from the world. 1 John 2, 15, 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its lust is passing away. I'm sorry, I have to adjust this. I can't see. There we go. Worldless lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. John 3.16, for God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then we move over to Romans 12.1-5. Romans 12.1-5 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all of the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. By the way, it's the definition of the church. And then Ephesians 1 verses 22 to 23, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church is his body, the fullness of the one who uh, fills all things in every way. And then Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. So something that we're seeing just in in the context of those verses that we've read so far is that the body of Christ, this church, okay, is made up of many members, all of whom are essential parts 
of a whole. So the world's out there. Here's the church. As members, we're a part of a whole, a singularity, a completeness. The New Testament Christians were always, always, always a part of a church community. So thinking of that concept of the church and the church community, the idea here is that there is something that all of us who are in the church hold in common. Now, from you, what are some of those things that the church holds in common? What are the things that would typify church people, church membership? What are some of those things? Going to church on Sunday. Worshiping together on, on, on Sunday or the Sabbath day. Some Christians worship on Saturday. It's the ancient way. That's great. Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that would be typical of the church? Communion. Communion? Yes. Baptism. Serving one another, absolutely. Great that you would say that, huh? Denise, Denise is our connections team leader, helps, helps with our service. For those of you who are like, who's he talking to? Other things that typify the church would be disciples. We become more and more like Jesus as we go. We're filled with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and understanding that this typifies the people of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we are demonstrating an authenticity to our message. So in the earliest church, the people were coming wanting to be disciples of Jesus. Now, even before Jesus planted the church at Pentecost, there were people who wanted to come and be disciples of his. So we're talking about the world, which is this out here, uh, the conduct, the things that typify the world. We're talking about the church that, that is planted at Pentecost, but between the world and the church, Jesus comes and he plants his ministry, his kingdom. And people were coming to Jesus and they were wanting to follow Jesus and identify with Jesus. And so we have a passage that comes up in, uh, this is in the book of, uh, this is in the book of Luke. So Luke chapter 9 Verses 57 to 62, you have an interesting thing that starts to happen. These people come and this guy, there's three of them in this particular instance in this passage. This one guy comes up and uh, he's kind of an impetuous disciple and he says, I, I want to follow you. I'm, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm in. I'm all in. Ready to go. Ready to go. And Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't even know what you're saying. To follow means to forsake all, everything. You know, I don't even have a place to lay my head. The foxes and the, and the, and the animals of the field have places for their, for their heads. I have nothing. That's what I'm asking you to come and follow us. And so the impetuous disciple kind of goes, oh, oh, I guess I need to think about that a little bit and ask if it's worth the price. The second of the disciple would-bes that came up that day, um, he was what we call a conditional disciple. And he runs up and he says, hey, uh, Jesus, I'd like to follow you. I'd like to follow you. I want to be all in. Uh, but, but, but first I need to bury my father. And Jesus said, look, let the dead bury their own dead. You need to come follow me now. Okay. By the way, rabbit trail for just a second. How many of you know what that really means when, when Jesus says, let the dead bury? Not those of you who are in the first service, Dave, goofball. But it, if you weren't in the first service and you're a big cheater like Jazzy Dave, uh, if, if you, what does it mean when Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead? When that guy said that, raise your hand or we're going to see. Do you think what Jesus was saying is your father has died? And you need to go bury your father first, and then you can follow you. Do you think that's what the man was asking? Let me bury my dead father first, and then I'm going to come follow you. Is that you think that's what he meant? No? <laughs> what do you mean then? After his father dies. After his father dies. Exactly right. So what, what Georgia is saying, the man was saying this. I'm going to honor my father as long as he's alive. My father's only 40, <laughs> you know, so, so he's got a long life ahead and I need to stay in my father's house and follow him because if I don't do it my dad's way, then I'm cut out of the inheritance and I'll be broke. 
you know, and the family will cut me off. So let me wait till my parents die, and then I'll have financial independence, and I won't offend anybody, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to set conditions. This is yes, this is now, this is all in. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man has, has no money. You follow me completely to the deference of everything else, no condition. And the third one was this remarkable one. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, by the way, it's called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. I don't know how many of you have been reading or familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writing. Um, you sound really smart when you read it, by the way, because people can say, oh, what did you read last year? Oh, I was reading some Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then you sound like you're so smart because you can say this big German name. You know, that's why I do it. But, uh, but what he's saying here, uh, Bonhoeffer says, the third would-be disciple like the first, thinks that following Christ means that he must make the offer of his own initiative as if it were a career he had mapped out for himself. Master, suffer me first, said the man. He wants to follow but feels obligated to insist on his own terms. Discipleship to Jesus is a possibility which can only be realized when certain conditions have been fulfilled. This is to reduce discipleship to the level of human understanding. The term for that is abstract Christianity. Now here's where this works in. If you have an abstract concept of Christianity, it basically means that you have determined the terms of what your Christianity will be, and then you're willing to follow it. So you'll make, you'll go to a business and you'll say, hey, this is a really beautiful and successful business. I'd like to be a part. Here's the terms. I'll work three days a week. Uh, I'll work two days on those three days a week. I'll just work two hours on each of those days. I'll make $150,000 with a full benefit package and a company car and a house. Sound good? And the boss says, beat it. (laughs) There's the road and there's where you shall go. No, this is not going to work. Yet, how many people do this? Ready? Here's the church. Here's the world, and they have all their world luggage in their package, and they carry it in, and they're like, hey, I'm going to be in the church now, and I'm going to bring my, my homosexuality and my alcoholism and my profanity and my obsession with shopping and my extramarital affairs. I'm going to bring them all with me. Cool? And Jesus is going, no, no, look. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You forsake all this world stuff and you become a part of the family of God. Become a part. Not instantaneously. Ding! You're suddenly perfect. All your sins are are worked out. You have no flaws and no faults. You're basically just a perfect human being day one in the church, right? Of course not. You forsake those things. You don't love them anymore. You love Jesus and you are becoming more like Jesus every day, which begins with the step of saying, I make Jesus my Lord and my Savior. That's my first step into the kingdom. And then you become more and more and more like Jesus every day. That's the discipleship process. So being in the church means that I don't love the world anymore. I love Jesus and the things of him, and that's what I am becoming. So this is what he's saying, to to step out of the world and into the church. Now, there are several definitions of the world in Scripture. The first one talks about the created order. So when you become a Christian, you turn your back on the world. It doesn't mean that you cease to be a human being, homo sapien, who breathes oxygen and is carbon-based. 
Obviously, that's not the world that Jesus is talking about uh, in Psalms 24 or in John 3.16. God loves his creation, okay, but he loves people, and that's what he's talking about, that he comes into his creation, into the lives of people, and brings us a way to be able to follow him. So in the first sense, the world means the created order. In the second sense, when he says the world, it's the class, uh, the, an entire class of human beings that exist. So when scripture says the world, he's talking about human beings. So when God so loved the world, he's not talking about Fido and Fifi, he's talking about human beings in the world that are made in his image to be in relationship with him in the third part of the world has to do um, with with culture, the non-Christian culture that is contrary to the kingdom. And that's what that 1 John 2, um, uh, 15 to 17 verse was really getting into when it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, then the, the, the father is not in him. And so those things of the world, the world's culture, like we talked about, the generational idioms and dynamics and mores, this thing that makes up the world will pass away, but what will last forever is God, God's love, and God's people. Huh? That's an amen to everybody who heard it. So at this moment, what I want you to make sure you've, you've kind of clicked in your mind's eye, kind of on your note page or whatever, check, got it, is the world, the church. The church is in the world, but not of it, and the world must not make its way into the church to infect and tear down the identity of and the purity of God's church, that though church is in the world and relevant to it, but it does not become like the world, that is to say the culture in which it exists. With me? So that's the first part of what I needed you to understand today. So then we start to look at how does the church conduct itself? What's the church behave like? Well, a few things we need to understand about that church before we talk about its behavior. First, the local church is the hope of the world. It is the hope. Jesus planted the church through Peter. Remember the truth that Peter stated in the gospel? That's what I'm going to build my church on, sport, not on Peter, but on the church, the, the statement of truth that Peter made, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's where he's going to build his church on. Now that that church is established, at Pentecost comes the formation of the formal church itself with the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which gives Christians the power to take the gospel to the world. That church uh, was planted by God, and it is his plan A for evangelism, and there is not a plan B. If the church fails, there's not a backup plan that God's got established. It is the role of the church to evangelize and discipleship. That is what we are here for. And then finally, we can be a beautiful and redemptive light in our culture, restoring and renewing when we are faithfully being what God has called us to be, faithfully behaving the way God has called us to behave. And how should we behave? Well, let's look at that very first church in Acts and let's find out how did they conduct themselves. Fair enough? Now, let, let me just a second be fair. The church in Acts in AD 32, 33, 34, whatever that time actually was, that church in that culture in that day has some things that should be consistent for all churches at all times. There's other things which we refer to as narratives. So there's narratives and normative. If it's true for all time, it's a normative. If there's a narrative, there's some things that that church did at that time, at that place that were specific to that time, at that place, which point to normative ideals, but speak to, to narrative 
occurrences. You guys kind of got that. Make a little note, follow it up in your life group maybe to have that conversation a little further. But let's talk about what's normative of Christians across all time because this is how we start. Here it goes like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple to break bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved." Now, that passage right there has been the subject of entire books. I think forests have died over this uh, so that seminarians could write, 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 write on what the church should actually look like. But what I want to do today is just break it down really simply into some characteristics that typified that early church. Number one, they devoted themselves to teaching. The prophets and the apostles teaching or what the church was studying. They studied them. They read them. Today, we have that all in one volume called the Bible. How amazing. Did you know that the early church for the first 300 some years did not have the capacity to pick up one Bible in their hand at one time and with incredible convenience in their own language, read the words of the prophets and the apostles that God had given. They didn't have that all in one place. It took effort. Even, even them, many people couldn't read, and they had to trust other priests and scribes and, and orators to read that for them. Think about how, how, how great you've got it today. You can gather together in your home group, your life group, with your family and your school. You can open up the Bible and read the wisdom of the prophets and the apostles, the words of God in human, you know, human words. You can read that right there in front of you. What an incredible gift. That's something that the church does. We devote themselves to Scripture reading, to the teachings They devoted themselves to prayer. You know what prayer is? It's an opportunity for the human being to be able to communicate with the creator of the entire universe. You can command the ear of the creator. It sounds like this. Oh God, dear Father, our Father who wishes and who art in heaven, Lord Jesus, dear Jesus, Savior, Father God, Abba, you have the ability to talk straight to God. That is amazing. And having that understanding, we do that together in corporate prayer. We do that in small group prayer where three or four are gathered in his name or six or eight or or 200. We come together and we pray uh, to God together. We lift our voices seeking communication and relationship with God. That's what the church did. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And what is fellowship? Fellowship is the gathering of Christians together of common mind and belief just to enjoy and to edify and to encourage and to support one another. That's what fellowship is. Sometimes that fellowship means that we come together because we're struggling with something and we want to help support people when they struggle. 
More often, it means we're celebrating this thing that we have in common. Isn't it great to be able to gather around people who believe like you do, think like you do, love like you do, enjoy the same things like you do? Isn't that an encouraging time? That's what the fellowship of the church is. When Christians from the United States are on mission trips and and we gather around with, with people from other cities, other nations, other tribes, other tongues, and we have this one thing in common, there's a fellowship that unites us. It's a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ universal. So Christians spend time fellowshipping. Christians spend time breaking bread together. That means we eat our meals together on purpose, not to the exclusion of eating by yourself in the middle of a work day, and not to the exclusion of eating with your unsafe friends or whatever. Christians frequently in one another's homes gather together and eat together. Eating is kind of an intimate thing, isn't it? Have you ever noticed? Think about it. You're gathering around and putting food in your mouth and chewing with each other. Some of you are slob bodies when it comes to eating. I have been around, and the first word that comes to my mind with some of you is hog. Holy cow. Did you, did you take any kind of a, a time to learn how to chew with your mouth closed? Napkin? Anyone? Anyone? Not talk with mouthful. What are you doing? These things can happen. I'm, I'm being silly, but we, when we eat together, think about it. It's kind of an intimate thing. Have you ever had to go on a bad date? No? Just me? Okay. So I've been on some bad dates before I was married, just following up on that, uh, and not with Kim. Those were all great dates. But I've, I went on some bad dates where you're going to have a meal together, like before you go to a movie, like dinner and a movie was the standard date of Generation X, I guess. And so we go, Generation, so we go and, and, and you're sitting and about 10 minutes into the meal, all I'm thinking is, how can we end this? I, I, we didn't have cell phones back then, but if somebody could just send me a carrier pigeon or a smoke signal or a friend could run in and go, hey, your parents need you at home. Oh, thanks for the save. Anything to get out of it. If you've been on a bad date, right? And have you ever had to eat a meal where it's tense or with a bad date or you're arguing with your spouse and you're sitting down to eat while you're arguing? Oh, now you're nodding. There we go. Uh, Eating can be an intimate thing. When Christians gather together to eat, what we're doing is is we're sharing this intimate moment and sharing of our resources with one another, and we talk around the carcass we're eating, right? That's what we do. We gather and we communicate and we talk and we share this time. You've opened your home to people and made yourself vulnerable. You've made yourself vulnerable going to another person's home. This is something that Christians do. This is part of hospitality. Now, when you hear the term broke bread together, at a minimum... It means that they eat together. But more likely what it meant was it's drawing us back to this thing that Jesus used to do. You remember the story of the road to Emmaus? Right? Jesus walked with these two apostles who didn't recognize him after his resurrection. And, and, and he shares with them all the things of the kingdom and he talks about the message of the gospel. And they still don't recognize him until they sit down <laughs> to eat. And he grabs the bread and he breaks it in just that Jesus way. I wish we knew what it was. But let's just imagine he takes it and he breaks the bread and he begins to hand it out. And they went, <gasps> How did I not realize that what Jesus did? Didn't our spirit burn within us that that was the Messiah? And and now we see it because of the way he broke bread. Listen, when Christians sit down to meals together, we should break bread together. And what that means, if I can break it down for you, is this. We should dedicate our time of eating together to bring in glory to God through what we're eating and through our conversation. So Christians pray before our meals. 
That's what we do. You do it in the restaurant too, because it's fun to make the McDonald's staff uncomfortable when you do it. It's really fun to make the waiter have to wait for just a second or to say to the waitress, hey, we're about to pray for our meals. Is there anything we can pray for you about? But it's so fun to be able to make sure that we, we pray together before our meals. And it also meant this. It also meant this. Christians frequently celebrated the act of communion in their meals together, not just in the, in the gathered congregation on Sunday mornings once a month, but they did it in their homes when three or four families would get together for a meal. They would open their meal with that remembrance time, remembering the communion of the Lord Jesus Christ that unites us. So these are some things that the early church did. And the other thing that they did, they shared things in common. They shared their resources with one another so that people in need had their needs met, so that people in struggle had, had struggle met, so that people who just want it, they just, oh man, heyday, windfall, shared that with others. They combined their resources to be able to do things together. After the Jerusalem um, church was disbanded because of the Roman uh, conquest of Titus and others, the churches went everywhere. They no longer had temples and synagogues to meet in, so Christians began to to build their own meeting places. And so their pooling of resources was to build the facilities that they could worship in, that they could do their ministry in, and that they could provide for those who were their leaders, their spiritual leaders, their pastors, their bishops um, in, in those early churches. So we see that churches didn't see things as just mine or yours, but as ours. And if I have something you need, it's there for you. And, and this is how Christians conduct themselves. So what you've seen over the past short passage is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer and sharing all things in common. This is what that early church did. Now, we think about the church today and belonging to the church. Church belonging today does mean we are members of a local body, this church. Remember we said there's the church and the world. Being a member of the church means we identify with, we are responsible to, we contribute to and receive from, we edify within, we submit ourselves to the authority and to the responsibility and the encouragement and the admonition of the local church. That local church is Sturgeon Bay Community Church. But even within this church, there are life groups and small groups that you should be in engaged in, which is where you have your personal relationships because, ready, ministry only happens in relationships, okay? You've been here any amount of time, you've heard that phrase before, but what we're saying is that the belonging means we're a part of the church formally and intentionally, and what it also means is that people who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ recognize that there are other Christians all around this community that are also a part of that Christian family. They are your brothers and sisters in the faith. And so what we're seeing is that this is how Christians ought to be behaving. We ought to be belonging to a local church, committed, and then making that commitment something that the world knows about us.